Okay. Jason, would you, would you read the scripture for us and pray for us? What's that? Do I have to go up there? Yeah, no, totally. You have to go up there. He's, well, Jason's there. ascending the mounts. Would you guys stand for the gospel reading? He told me I had to come up here. I was not thrilled. Okay. I'm going to be reading John 1, 35 through 42. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the 10th hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means, when translated, is Peter. Please pray with me. Dear God, thank you so much that you are a rabbi or a teacher or a God that turns around and asks us what it is that we want. And then you stay with us on that journey of discovery. Um, be with John as he brings the message, and uh, be with us as we listen, and help us to be open and ready to hear what it is that you might have to say. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Jason, thank you. Thank you. Natalie, thank you. Thank you. So cool. Thank you. Um, so last week, I'm going to... I'm looking at my clock to see how short I need to be. Okay. Last week we talked about the concept of words. Um, I don't need that. Don't worry about it. It's good. Uh, we talked about the concept of words. What are words? Uh, words are these sounds, these utterances with a socially assigned meaning. And so the example I gave is this furry stuff on the ground is not carpet, but we all call it carpet. We've decided that this stuff right here we're going to call carpet in the English language. If we lived in another culture, another country, we would call it perhaps something different. But the word, uh, the, 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 we've assigned a meaning to this sound, and we've called it carpet. Those are what words are. Words are socially defined terms to, to reference something. Um, the words matter. The, the, the meaning and the value we assign to those words matter so that we can be comprehensible in conversation, uh, one person to another person. Uh, so it matters what we say. It also matters who says these words. And so someone saying, I love you, to you, if they are some total stranger in the mall, or if they're like your long-lost father saying those words, means very different things. Uh, the words and who says them and what they mean matter, as well as the absence of words. And uh, words are, are powerful. They create worlds. The words give life, and they take it. Things that people have said to you, you treasure or you keep, um, it really hurts the words that have been spoken over you. And so bearing in mind the concept of words, we talked about Jesus in John chapter 1. Jesus is the Word uh, with capital T, capital W. He is the Word, the Logos. Jesus is the Word. And there's a, a pastor named Brian Zond who said, Jesus is what God has to say. 
Everything that is Jesus is what God has to say to humankind. Jesus, in his totality, expresses the truth of God and what God is like. And so we looked at verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, that everything we want to know about God, we direct to the person of Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but, but the one and only Son has made him known. Jesus, all our curiosity about God should be directed to Jesus Chris read from Colossians, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that God that we can't see. Look at Jesus. And what kind of a word is he if Jesus is the word of God? He's a word of grace and truth. As Jason talked about, um, there are a cacophony of voices. There's a lot of noise out there about what God is like. And we get, it gets so confusing. We get confused, the church, we get burnt out, talked about how Church in our individual lives sometimes is like uh, in the game Cranium, you play Senso Sketch, where you get, you're told to draw something and you close your eyes and you draw it and you look at it and you're like, that's nothing like what I was trying to do. And our individual lives can be like that and also our experience of church. We need to take another swing at it, which is why Jesus is always stirring up his church. They're fresh energy cycles, you know, like ours. We need a hard reset. We need to attune our ears again to learn the voice of Jesus, or maybe for the first time. And so we prayed together last week that prayer, open my ears to hear your voice. In fact, let's do it again. Say, open my ears to hear your voice. Uh, we learned, we took six takeaways from John's gospel last week in verses 1 through 18. If Jesus is, is everything that God has to say, if Jesus is what God has to say, what do we learn about God by looking at Jesus? And we said six quick lessons from just the first 18 verses of John. We have a God in Jesus who wants to have a relationship with us. We have a God in Jesus who wants to give us life. We have a God who is light and sometimes that light is blinding, but that light also shows us where to go and how to live. Uh, we have a God that can be misunderstood and even rejected. We see a God who wants to adopt us into his family. And we see a God in Jesus Christ that's characterized by grace and truth. Okay, who's really good at a quick Google? Who can Google something for me real quick? Okay, we'll see who's fastest. Uh, Let's Google the name Paul D. Irving with an I, I-R-V-I-N-G. Who's got Paul D. Irving? And when you got it, just tell me his title. Well, it's still loading. You're not there yet, Noel. Sergeant at Arms in the U.S. House of Representatives. Does anyone know who Paul D. Irving is? And if there's a know-it-all, keep your hand down. Okay. Yeah, Paul D. Irving is the Sergeant at Arms in the U.S. House of Representatives. And if you watch the State of the Union address... On Tuesday night, you're going to hear his voice because he's going to say, Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States, and then everyone is going to stand up and President Trump is going to walk in the room. But that's really the thing that Paul D. Irving does. He oversees decorum and order within the House, but you hear his voice on the State of the Union in particular when the President comes to address Congress. And uh, Paul D. Irving is kind of like uh, compared to John the Baptist here in John's Gospel. Paul D. Irving is like, you don't really pay attention to him, but you know when he speaks up, the guy after him is, it carries some weight. The guy who comes after him is someone that you should probably pay attention to who wields some unusual authority. And the same thing is true of John the Baptist in John's gospel. 
that John's like Jesus, you know, sergeant at arms. He's like Jesus hype man. He comes in, and you know when he talks, the person who comes in after him is the one you really need to pay attention to. And John plays a great role. And this is slightly confusing if you're new to the Bible. We've got three Johns going on in this moment. I am J-O-N, John Odom, the least important of the Johns in this trilogy. You've got John the Apostle who records this in the Gospels. Again, difficult, two meanings of the word gospel. But John who wrote this. And then you've got John the Baptist who's doing the dunking, who's, who's, who's Jesus' hype man. He's the sergeant at arms. And if you look at John the Baptist in John's Gospel, he plays a very unique role. He has a very predictable sermon everywhere he goes. Because it's not me, it's not me, it's not me, it's him, it's him, it's him. Everywhere he goes, it's not me, it's not me, it's him, it's him. Are you Elijah? It's not me, it's him. Are you the Messiah? Nope, it's not me, it's him. Everywhere John goes, he's directing attention to the guy who's following him. He wants us to pay attention uh, to Jesus. Uh, John 1.8 says, John the Baptist was not the light. He came as a witness to the light. And the best that John the Baptist did, the one role he, he, didn't, he needed to not screw up was to just point people to Jesus. And I think that's a great parallel for, like, for pastoral ministry. John the Baptist was not the dude you should be getting excited about. Neither any like, pastoral personality, and that happens in churches. You get, you get personality-centric. The best I can offer you is to point you to Jesus. Don't pay any attention to me. It's the one who comes after me. Where does John the Baptist? It's not me. It's not me. It's him. It's him. Pay attention to Jesus. And so one day John is hanging out with two of his students, two of his disciples. And this is the second time he's done this. If you read chapter 1, you'll see that, that what Jason just read is the second time John uses this term to talk about Jesus. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And his disciples look over at Jesus. He's doing what he's got to do. He points. He points to Jesus. It's not me. It's him. He calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John is referencing this Old Testament story, the Passover, which perhaps you're familiar with. Uh, Israel is enslaved in Egypt, and God has been in the process of, of establishing, Yahweh's been establishing his identity with Israel. And then he's done these plagues, these great performances to tell Egypt, watch out, let my people go. And the last one is, is uh, it's called the, the angel of death. How harrowing is that? The angel of death. The angel of death <laughs> is coming. But Yahweh said to Israel, take a pure spotless lamb, slaughter it, and put the blood of the lamb over the doorframe of your house. And when this angel comes, he's going to look at the doorframe of your house and know that the lamb died so that you don't have to. So John is referencing this story. It's the Passover that led to Israel's great exodus out of Egypt, where they left this land where generation after generation they had been in slavery to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh. John is saying, in Jesus, we've got a new Passover lamb, which means we've got a new exodus. That Jesus is the lamb who will be slain so that you don't have to. That Jesus is the new Moses who is leading a new exodus. He's taking away the sins, not just of one nation, but of the whole world. And he's leading us not out of exodus of literal slavery in one nation, but out of slavery to sin and death. Watch him. It's him. It's him. It's him. It's not me. And John's disciples listened to John's sermon, which was great. And we figure out later it's probably John who wrote this and Andrew. And so they start following Jesus. And Jesus, knowing that someone's on his trail, turns around and looks at him square in the eye and says, what do you want? And uh, I think it's Andrew. I'm going to attribute it to Andrew. 
Um, he's like, uh, where's your house? It's like, what? where's your, Andrew's like, where's your house? It's like he panicked. It's like, did you ever see uh, the Chris Farley show on Saturday Night Live? He's interviewing these famous people. He's sitting there with Paul McCartney, you know, the Beatles, and he's really nervous. He's like, hey, uh, so uh, do you remember when you were in the Beatles? Yeah, yeah. That was awesome. <laughs> and so, where are you staying? Look, the Lamb of God, what's your house like? Take it, take it. But what's so cool is Jesus sees this muddled request of Andrew's, and he sees it in its intention. It's an expression of interest. And Jesus takes that, and he reframes it, and he invites him. You want to know what my house is like? All right. Well, come and see. We'll talk together either way. I don't know why you want to see what my house is like, but it's kind of weird. And it says it was 4 o'clock or 10th hour, whatever it is, smart people. You, you figured it out. He said it was like 4 o'clock, which is maybe you've had one of those encounters. You remember the date. You remember the time. You remember where you were when it happened. Well, for Andrew and John, it was at 4 o'clock on that one day, and Andrew will always remember, why did I ask him, where are you staying? And they went and they spent the day with Jesus. They saw where he was staying. But there's then a gap in the story. If you read it again, there's a gap in the story. We don't know what they talk about. We don't know everything that they did. And so we kind of have to fill in the blank. And they, Andrew and John come back. They're like, yeah, we asked Jesus where he's staying, and he showed us, and yada, 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 we believe he's the Messiah. It's like, well, you yada, yada over the best part. What happened? But there's a gap. And this gap invites us who are listening and now reading the story into this process of discovery where a great storytellers do this. They leave out some of the good parts so we use our imagination. John, who's writing this, wants us to be inquisitive about the conversation. He wants us to wonder what they were talking about, to ask questions, so that we'll ask questions for ourselves and we'll discover Jesus for ourselves. It's one thing to read a, a book or to see a movie about two people falling in love. When you've, felt, when you've fallen in love and you know the electricity in another person's eyes or, or to have a child, to look at this child and know, like, this is ours. This is mine. It's, it's surreal. You can't describe it. It's something you have to experience for yourself. And John gets it. So he says to all, he, he leaves some mystery in the story. Rather than just giving us the gold, he wants, us to, he wants to point to where the mine is so we can discover it for ourselves. He doesn't want to spill the beans too quickly. So Andrew and John come back from this afternoon with Jesus where they've come back saying he's the Messiah He's the anointed one of God. There's something special with him. And the first thing Andrew does is when he goes back, is he finds his brother, Peter, Simon Peter. And Andrew sure flubbed his line. <laughs> he screwed it up the first conversation with Jesus, but we'll give him grace because Andrew does one thing really consistently, and he's always bringing people to Jesus. It's like Noel Kilgore. Like, four of you are not here because of Noel. Um, Andrew's always bringing people to Jesus, and the story ends with Jesus looking this guy straight in the eye, and he changes his name on the spot. You're going to be Peter from now on. Okay. But it's significant. It happens a number of times throughout the Bible where someone has an encounter with Yahweh, 
And then they have a different name after that because the last name just, everything changed. You think of Abram. Man, Yahweh called him Abraham, father of many nations. Sarai couldn't be Sarai anymore because of what God had done. She was 90 when she gave birth to Isaac. She's Sarah now. Uh, You think about uh, Jacob who wrestled with God, got a new name. He's Israel from now on. Think about Saul when the Lord Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. After that, he couldn't be, Saul didn't fit him anymore. He was Paul from then on. And here we've got this guy who Jesus just looked him in the eye and he saw something in him. Nope, you're Peter. There's something there. Two really remarkable interactions here. And both of them show us, John wants us to pick up on, on the omniscience of Jesus, that Jesus, Jesus sees more than what's going on. That he can look a woman or he can look a man in the eye and, and he can see their question and know what's really behind it. Or he can look in their eye and know, I've got something great for you and I'm changing your name now before you do it. We talked last week, if Jesus is the Word of God, then maybe we could go to some of those passages in, in the Scriptures that talk about the Word and relabel it with Jesus. Uh, maybe you heard uh, Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active. Well, if Jesus is the Word, Jesus is living and active. He's sharper than a double-edged sword. Jesus will cut you straight down the middle of you so you see what's on your insides. And he certainly did it with these fellows here. He did it with Peter. He saw what was inside him and what he had for him, and he gave him a different name. And when Andrew and John came up to Jesus, he saw what was behind the question, where are you staying? As an expression of interest. Yeah, and he asked them that question, what do you want? And he wasn't just asking them, like, will you leave? What do you want? Leave me alone. That wasn't it. So what are you seeking? What, do you want to, what are you hoping to get out of this? It occurred to me on Friday that I was thinking about this text um, and this question, what do you want, and posing it to all of you, and I thought, I haven't even answered it for myself. If Jesus is living and active and he's staring at you straight in the eyes and he asks you, what do you want? What are you seeking? What do you want from me out of all of this? How would you answer? In fact, you've got an index card in front of you. Why don't you grab it and a bunch of pens, one per person. Why don't you write at the top of that index card, Jesus posing this question to you. What do you want? What do you want? What are you seeking? Here's an assumption that I'm making in preaching that maybe we don't all share. I have a working assumption that, that Jesus is living and active. I have this working assumption that we're studying the words of Jesus not like we would study like Martin Luther King or some other historian. You read their words for like the moral lesson in the middle of it. What's discontinuously different about the way that we're studying Jesus is I believe that Jesus is alive and active, that the Spirit of Jesus directed you to come here, and the Spirit of Jesus is asking you again, what do you want? What are you seeking from me? I believe that Jesus is today at the right hand of his Father, and he's been praying for you, and he's been pulling for you, and he's been speaking to you. He longs to know you and to adopt you and to give you life 
and to lead you out of slavery. That this Jesus who was alive and active and at the right hand of his Father longs to speak a word of grace and truth over you. But as we said at the very beginning, Jesus said, come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm humble and gentle in spirit. Jesus respects you. So he's not going to force himself on you. He's not going to come unbidden. And so if he's asking you that question this morning, what are you seeking? What do you want? What's your answer? And then there's the question, what do you want really? What I love about Jesus' interaction with John and with Andrew is they they took a swing at an answer, and maybe it wasn't so thoughtless and Chris Farley-ish as I'm attributing here, but he took their answer as, as an expression of interest. Wherever you're going is where I want to go. And so here's the beauty. I'm going to invite you to consider your answer to that question. And you may not know, and that's okay. Wrestle with it. Put this question on your mirror. Put it in your car. Put it in your Bible, wherever you're going to see it. And ask the question, what do I want from Jesus? What am I seeking? Why on earth did I come to church on a Sunday morning at 1030 when I could be sleeping and reading the newspaper and drinking coffee or having brunch? What are you seeking? Now, here's the beautiful thing. No matter how messed up or incomplete your answer is, I believe that Jesus will take that expression of interest as a prayer in itself. He'll take that interest, he'll transform it, he'll look you dead in the eyes and know what you need behind it. The gap or the the hole within you that you don't even know you have that you can't name, but he knows it because he made you and he loves you. And write down those words, what it is you're seeking as a prayer. And let's take together a leap of faith, trusting that as you write that down, he hears your prayer, honors that prayer, and Jesus, who's alive and active, will speak to you in just the way that you need it. He said, come, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I'm humble and gentle in spirit. With me, you'll find rest for your souls. One thing I love in the Gospels is when Jesus eats with people. Because it's an intimate thing to eat with people or to to share a meal in a home. It's an intimate thing. It's friendship. And every week, we share a meal with the Lord Jesus around this table. He wants to have table fellowship with you. He wants to have a kitchen table kind of relationship with you that's familiar If those who are uh, serving communion would go ahead and come up, Um, hand sanitizer is over here. I want to let you know, as we come to the table, uh, you don't have to be a United Methodist. You don't have to be like a loyal member of Cornerstone. You don't have to have been a member of any other church. I hope that you come, though, with an eagerness to know Jesus, be close to Jesus. I want you to know as you come that, that he has an eagerness to know you and be close to you. He'll take that expression of faith, that answer to the question, those open hands opened in faith uh, as a prayer in itself, and he'll turn it into something beautiful and give you the thing that you most need. So the way the story goes, on the night in which Jesus gave himself for us, after he'd thoroughly wiped off all the hand sanitizer as not to get the guys sick, he took bread. He gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat, all of you. 
This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And they really didn't get what he was talking about. After the supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, blessed it, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. When we get around the table, we believe that it's not just the memory of Jesus or the memory of Jesus' story that we tell. Believe that by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is present with us. Some of the sweetest times of worship and intimacy with Christ that I've experienced have been kneeling at the altar rail, believing, Lord Jesus, you've got something for me. I need it. Come with that kind of need and desperation today. He's eager to speak to you. He's eager to adopt you. He's eager to give you that word of assurance. Would you tell him, if he asked you the question, what do you want, what would you tell him?